Hello and welcome back to the conversation here on the Right Side Ireland or TRSI as I am told I have to call it now even though I, I think that sounds like either a condition or a, a bank but anyway today I am genuinely delighted to, that we're going to be talking in this time of pandemic about a pandemic not the current one it but the one that most famously preceded it, the great flu pandemic of 1918 and on, also known as the Spanish flu. And we are very lucky to have, as they say, the woman who wrote the book on it. It's Dr. Ida Milne, who is the lecturer in European history at Carlo College and visiting research fellow in the School of History at Trinity College, Dublin. Ida, thanks a million for coming and welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on. I suppose, the, obviously, the, one of the reasons, that, the principal reason, is that it's a new experience for all of us, this uh, this whole uh, pandemic thing. But constantly we hear people referring to the Spanish flu, the great pandemic of 1918-1919, talking and making comparisons between it and the current situation. And it became very obvious to me, a lot of people were talking about it, but nobody actually seemed to know very much about it, if anything at all, blathered on about it. Now, I've heard you speak about it before. I have read your book. I was hopeful that we might be able to have this conversation. So, listen, I'm going to, this principally, this is going to be about you today. I want to start, so let's start the story. This Spanish, does it, does it start in Spain? When does it start? Whence did it come and how, how did it get here? We start well, you you're supposed to start with the $5 question. You started with the $100 question. <laughs> we still don't know where it came from. We're highly unlikely to ever know where it came from. But there are two main theories of origin. Right. Uh, one is the one that everybody uh, has heard now because it's been on several different programs. This lovely idea that Albert Gitchell, um, a cook in, in, in the U.S. Army camp in Kansas, is the first person. Uh, to get it, that he's the patient zero that people search for in such epidemics. Um, but by the time he catches it in, in March 1918, we think I'm part of a, a group of um, international uh, researchers who share, pool a lot of our knowledge and have regular meetings in different parts of the world um, looking at different aspects um, of this pandemic. And we have been trying for some years now uh, to some of the group, I've studied this for 16 years, but some of them have studied it like since the, the, the 1980s, I was going to say the 1880s. Uh, people like Howard Phillips in South Africa, who really leads the charge uh, studying this in the world and guides the rest of us on, on, on it. Uh, or Sven-Erik Mameland, who um, worked on it since he was a young researcher in Oslo, uh, looking at the social, how it, uh, the flu that, that particularly affects people, poorer people and people with um, from deprived areas or, mm -hmm. or, you know, maybe intellectually challenged. So we all look at it from, from different aspects. I'm particularly interested in memory and in oral history of it, although I've covered most aspects of the flu in Ireland in my book. So back to the origin. There... Um, are you know this the, the Albert Gitchell origin is one another predominant uh, origin theory uh, comes from not from America but from Britain where John Oxford in particular another very prominent researcher of, of, of this pandemic uh, posits that it began at either side of the British Channel uh, between Aldershot possibly and Etat uh, where the troops were 
rushed across and housed in uh, conditions, uh, very close quarters with constantly changing numbers and also housed alongside the live army uh, food at the time, the live protein for the army at the time, which were um, pigs, uh, geese, uh, hens, ducks, uh, and fowl and pigs can both be vectors of influenza. So he argues that this would be the ideal cauldron uh, to cook up a new flu and to spread it. Whatever happened, I know there are other uh, theories that it came from China. Uh, I saw one see... recently saying that they thought it came from Vancouver. From have you, that There were ch- a ch- Chinese work camps in South Canada, Vancouver, and it came from there. I, this is a time, obviously, when the, there was no such thing as genetic sequencing and the gen- genomes and things like that. Yes. So people yeah. couldn't yeah. work out, they couldn't track it. How... How do, how do, so we have this, I was just going to say like whatever happened, we think that we're working backwards now and that we're constantly pushing it a little bit earlier, certainly than the Gitchell case, uh, which was um, March 1918 and that maybe even into 1917. So ironically, uh, President Trump might have been right, but we won't know. We probably will never know. Uh, because we can't sequence it, uh, you know, on that. Sorry, we, not that we can't sequence it, it has been sequenced, but that, you know, the, the, the material just isn't there anymore to, to, to trace it back. Is this one of those things that they could dig up people up in the in the North Pole? Is there, was there any use to that? Oh, yeah, that, that, that's been done. There's an awful lot of research been done on, on the last few years. Uh, John Oxford famously dug up uh, uh, Sir Mark Sykes, the... Uh, famous negotiator on uh, Mesopotamia at um, at the Paris Peace Conference because he was buried, he died from flu uh, shortly uh, towards the end of the conference, I think. I I can't remember the date now, Uh, but he uh, was buried in a lead coffin. So he was very hopeful that he would still be able to find enough uh, of the virus in him, in him uh, to find out more about it. Uh, but I think that was a dead end. So there's an awful lot of searching was done. And uh, finally, um, it, 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 it was sequenced. I have to say the science is not my side of things. Uh, okay. So, you know, you may interview somebody else about that. But, but this is the search for what they call the, the patient, patient zero, whatever, the first yeah. person, all that. But at, at what point is there a, 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 an agreement that whatever is happening, that there's this thing happening in Germany and there's a thing happening in Flanders and a thing happening in France. Yeah. And it's all the same thing. When did people start to become aware that... I I think that really starts happening from March 1918. Uh, You know, when the news comes out of Kansas, but, but also you have troops onwards being rushed backwards and forwards across, uh, the sea, the, 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 the US troops uh, coming right. into the war arena, uh, desperately trying to get them across the sea to help um, fight against the Germans who have uh, been able to concentrate on the Western Front more uh, because Russia um, pulling out of the Eastern Front with the revolution there means that the Germans have much more power on the Western Front. So it's much more important to have the Americans in. And um, this is work recently that Howard Phillips has been looking at. And if anybody wants to look at it, they can read it on the 1914-1918 encyclopedia, where he talks of the numbers of the different troops who catch it, you know, like the Americans, the French, uh, and, and the British catching it earlier on in 1918. And then towards the end of 1918, in the, in the summer and in the autumn, uh, the Germans uh, have a really bad experience with, with the flu, the German army. 
um, you know, which possibly weakens them is a contributing factor towards the end of the war. So when was was this happening with the Germans? um, I think, if I remember correctly from Howard's work, it's July through October 1918, but it's possibly something of a blue flu then too. Mm-hmm. All right. You know that you know that they know that the, the writings on the cards and and some of them may be going sick anyway. Uh, but von Ludendorff talks about it and talks about in, in July nineteen eighteen about about how, how it's weakening the army and that it is a cause for concern for the German army. So it may have been <clears throat> maybe part of the that collapse that the collapse of the army and the or a contributing it's a, contrib- a contributing factor. I think yeah. we'd say. And what's interesting is that it hasn't really been looked at until recent years as being uh, making an impact. Uh, but we had uh, Howard Phillips actually came over to um, um, Glasnevin Cemetery um, in 2000 and um, was it 2018. Um, we held a, um, a commemoration. Uh, there are a uh, symposium. We held an exhibition there, uh, a group I was working with in, in Trinity College uh, School of Histories and, and Humanities, uh, Dr. Georgina Laragi, myself, Kieran O'Neill, uh, David, Professor David Dixon, and um, Frank Ludlow and Connor Dodd from the museum. We put on an exhibition there and we also had a one day conference on it. And Howard Phillips came over from South Africa to talk about it. And um, he was talking there too about how um, you know that the various armies caught it, but you have to remember that um, he, he, it was very perceptively pointing out that when um, people might have recovered from the flu, they wouldn't feel well for quite a while afterwards. So he felt that the armies might have been weakened by it, mm-hmm. even though that they would have recovered, you know, because you uh, post-flu malaise is something we all feel now, never mind when we're away trying to fight a war away from home. So that's interesting that you say, they just so describe the flu itself. What, what was it? What was this thing? Well, it was really uh, very like... Um, you know, uh, uh, it was a new flu, one um, that uh, humankind hadn't experienced before. So therefore, there was no natural immunity to it. It wasn't like the seasonal flu that was circulating, uh, but it had a lot of features of the seasonal flu that was circulating. You know, the usual high fever. Uh, it had a lot of people talked about headaches in it. And, and I have accounts, say, for example, in what is now St. James's Hospital, it was then the South Dublin Union Hospital, of uh, the police being called in because so many people were uh, being quite violent and disruptive uh, when they had it and banging their head off the wall and things like that and, oh. uh, because they were in such pain. Um, another very common feature of it was nosebleeds. A lot of people got nosebleeds um, and different kinds of, uh, I suppose, bruising as well. Um, one of the key features of it was when a patient got really ill, uh, their lungs filled with blood and albumin and things, and uh, the little tiny alveoli just filled up with these fluids and couldn't do their job uh, oxygenating the blood. So the body would start to turn purple. Uh, I've seen this happen to somebody with an asthma attack when you know the lungs aren't working properly, right. and it's it's a very scary thing when you see um, the peripheries and then spreading up upwards towards the central core body, you know your hands, and, and then start turning blue, and then the rest. And um, I, I I wonder was it like that? I don't know. Um, 
but um, the post-mortem showed then that the they alveoli were filled with all these uh, kind of fluids. And we have one account from a doctor who worked in Dublin's Matter Hospital. Uh, he was a junior doctor there, uh, Dr. McNamara. And um, he said, when he was writing about in the 50s, he said uh, that when this feature happened, it was called heliotrope cyanosis, after the name, the skin turned cyanosis, meaning, you know, deprived of oxygen. Yes. And um, heliotrope was the colour, uh, kind of mauvish colour. Lovely colour. And he said that when this happened, it filled uh, the patient, the doctor and the onlooking family all with dread because they knew the end was more or less nigh. So... If you caught this, we'll get on to infectivity in a, in, in, in a bit. If you catch this Spanish flu, mm. do you have any sense of how great a gamut of symptomology the, the patient presented? We're talking today about people who are many who completely asymptomatic and other people um, for whom it's a lethal experience. So with the spanish flu was it a, it was very a similar it was everything from um you know probably no symptoms at all to a cold experience right. something like a cold um other people would have the regular kind of flu experience uh some people then um would recover from that flu and go on to catch something like pneumonia maybe meningitis or have a lot of other uh, side effects um uh, I've read one um, research um, piece of research on it, which talked about people having a lot of uh, vascular conditions happening after it, uh, va vascular issues after it. Um, so um, some people uh, might catch it, head off to work, and um, the classic story that the the wife would then get a knock on the door from the police to say your husband has died at work or something like that. Yeah. Uh, other people, as I say, would recover, uh, go back to work and uh, then maybe die from pneumonia or something else uh, from a secondary infection. Um, how, how quickly, is there sense, you said you... It really depends. Off to like, work. And, yes, and how well, some people died very quickly and, uh, you know, again, maybe they were struggling through it we don't know but we have these accounts from the newspapers where somebody would go to work in the morning and and, and be dead by lunchtime um other people then there were other issues um like for example that people would go out with very high fevers and i came across some coroner's um uh reports in dublin where people had fallen in, in front of the trams uh, because they were so ill with the flu, you know, that they'd stagger and, and fall right. in. And there was one awful story of, um, I don't know if you know, Herbert Park, uh, yes. built for the Great Exhibition about a decade earlier. And um, uh, there's a pond in Herbert Park, which I think anybody who knows it would realise it's only a few inches, a foot or so deep. It's not deep at all. And this poor gentleman um, was crossing the park to go to get the pharmacy to get medicine for his, himself and his sick wife. Mm -hmm. And he drowned in the pond. My God. He fell over the pond, couldn't get out of it. He was so ill. Um, so there are often stories like that. Out. Yeah. There's so, one story that particularly uh, uh, affects me is from near our home place, uh, you know, yours and mine yes. in North Wexford a story uh, about uh, a family who caught it 
and um, the newspaper reported uh, that the hearse came away and took the bodies of three children away and then um, the ambulance came and took the mother and father and the remaining children to, to the hospital. So there were an awful lot of stories in the newspapers of entire families dying it, I mean, uh, from it. The humanity, the, uh, the, it's horrible. You see. I mean, uh, the grand, grandparents of a friend, a mutual friend of ours, um, you can see on the, the headstone, the family headstone, they went to, uh, in the morning, they went to bury a, a sister of his, he was a chap at the time, before the, and when the funeral party got home, they came home to discover that the child they had left in the morning had died while they were away. Mm, it, mm. Horrible stories of humanity. But so it's it's happening. It was it's it's being recognised as a pandemic, shall we say, in 1917. Now, 1918. Sorry, yeah. 1918. Now, yeah. I remember reading. I I, I don't suppose it was like that. In the Great Plague, the, the the in the in the 14th century European uh, plague, and I always thought that it, it's almost like one of those dystopian science fiction stories that you get these in the 20th century. The cities like Paris and London waited for the the plague to hit. They 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 had it had ravaged through Italy. 60% mm. of the population of Florence had been destroyed, and it it progressed. And London sat there waiting. Uh, one of the one of the few things they did for they 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 built uh, extra space into the graveyards so that there was actually there was a there was blessed ground ready so that everybody who died could be. But that was to the extent that they were. But this sense that it was coming and indeed eventually it did come, and uh, half or more than the population of London and urban England died. Had it co- did it come to Ireland it, it, it pretty well immediately, or was or were people oh, waiting for you it? You know, when I was watching, um, I'd say early December, somebody told me, "Look at this new disease in Wuhan." Oh, right. And ironically, um, I was sixty, as you know, during lockdown. I, uh, you know what Oscar yes. Wilde says about um, a woman who'll tell you her age; she'll tell you anything, yeah. and. Um, I'm not shy about saying it, uh, but for my 30th birthday, um, myself and my then boyfriend went to China. And one of the places we went to was Wuhan. So really? I actually I had known the city, I'd been there. Yeah, yeah, because we were, yeah, we, we, we'd been there. Um, it was a beautiful city, very damp. It was my memory of it, very foggy. Uh, uh, and then very run down, but now a like, very modern city. You know, it was um, quite French, as I remember it being. Uh, but um, for that reason, I suppose, I took a particular interest in it. In it, in it um, and um, so I was watching, reading, 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 and I had a feeling, and a couple of my scientists asked them different questions about, you know, uh, to give me a backward glance to understand the medicine uh, uh, and the science and the scientific thinking at the time and the scientific thinking now. Uh, my God. And we really had a strong feeling from the very beginning that this was going to be, if not the big one, something that would be on 
a scale that would in some way compare, uh, which is always taken to be the, the what we call the big one, the one that, um, mm-hmm. you know, that you compare the scale of other um, devastating global pandemics rather than the smaller ones we had uh, in the 50s, the 60s, and in 2009. So uh, while we're not at anything like that scale of death now, and we hope we won't be, we hope that science will get a grip on this, uh, that medical care will get a grip on this uh, before it gets to anything like killing 50 to 100 million people. Um, I think everybody who had an interest in it was very much aware from early on, uh, partly because of the way it spread, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, that... um, pre-symptomatically or asymptomatically that, you know, uh, whereas that with the, some of the more uh, deadly flus, the, 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 the ones that would kill, uh, the avian flus that would kill um, maybe one in two people who catch it. Right. Uh, so therefore it doesn't get a chance to spread very much and, and it would make people sick very quickly. Uh, that this seemed to make people sick slowly. And now we know that much better. We know that there's kind of at least two phases and maybe possibly a lot more uh, to this flu. It's getting, it's, it's, uh, it's one clever, clever disease. And uh, funny thing, um, yeah, no, it's an awful thing to say, but, but yes. it is, um, in a way, it's something that humbles mankind. And I think in 1918, again, that's another comparison to be made between the two, uh, because in 1918, so much of the infectious disease which had troubled mankind um, very invested in bacteriology at the time. And they were using bacteriological methods in hospitals and to treat disease and in public health as well. So the idea of you know, sanitation and uh, cleanliness and um, infectious disease seemed to be on the run. Uh, because they seemed to, uh, they understood most infectious disease then to be caused uh, by bacteria. Whereas, of course, along came this disease, which was caused by a virus, which was then, I think, um, uh, they didn't have the power to actually see a virus at the time with the kind of microscopes they had at the time. And it wasn't until the 1930s that they understood um, that influenza was a virus. Um, So this forced, um, it humbled medicine. And medicine had got quite, you see, throughout the journals and the uh, medical journals at the time, and uh, uh, that medicine has, has got quite proud of what it can do. Yeah. And you see in Ireland and elsewhere, something that we call the epidemiological transition is happening, that the rate of death from infectious disease is dropping. And they think this is because of the bacteriological methods that, that they're using. Uh, but it's actually far more complex than that. And we think now, you know, it's a combination of things like uh, fresh water, pasteurization of milk, better housing conditions, uh, better food, more um, supports for people. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, very complex issue, but, 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 but multiple factor uh, causality. Uh, so this really, um, I suppose, humbled medicine. And made it think again. And I, what do we see now? Yeah, the very the, same the, thing. The same. The Medicine same thing. is now working out of its skin, just like it did in 1918, to try and come to grips with this. Be, before we get into Ireland and the experience, or particular experience, can you just give us a sense, Ida, of how global and how quickly a genuinely global thing this the, the 19 the 18 flu was? 
so the third wave then really uh, began in most places in the world in the spring of um, 1919. And here in Ireland, well, particularly in Dublin, uh, 19 experienced in the first and second uh, waves. Uh, but in the third wave, for some reason, it didn't. In Ireland, it broadly sorry, affected... Just to be clear, was it a genuinely global hmm. experience? Like, did it get... Was it South America? Oh, Africa? yeah. Uh, it, um, South America, most of the experience was in 1920. Uh, Africa um, had it in 1918, 1919. Um, many parts of Africa had it. Um, Howard Phillips particularly uh, documents the South African experience, but uh, David Killingray has looked at it in other parts of Africa. Um, a lot of the ports along West Africa, there's an awful lot of talk, about, uh, detail of, of, of it in there. Uh, it got to Australia, but Australia did uh, operate a quarantine system where people were kept in ships uh, off the shore until they were disease free. And Australia, again, did, did that quite successfully and, and has so far got a lower uh, experience and so has New Zealand um, than we would be having, say, in Europe or, or in Northern America. Mm-hmm. So um, they, when they repatriated their Australians in China, uh, they, uh, they brought them to um, an island and kept them off there until they were symptom-free. So that, that was a big help. Um, uh, it, it, it infected just about everywhere in the world. I think somebody documented some islands that have since sunk back into the ocean <laughs> as being the only place that it didn't go to. And this got as far as the Arctic uh, to the Inuit villages. How did it affect the, the Inuit? I mean, quite badly, I think. Well, in, in, in uh, North America, it, it, it affected the, 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 some of the villages really badly. And I've heard accounts of saying that maybe one in two people could die in, in those villages. They're more remote and I suppose sometimes would have health challenges as well. Um, in northern Sweden, uh, up near to the Arctic as well, they had a fourth um, wave in 1920. You know, as it travelled further north. And, and Yeah, yeah. Whoa. So... What is the experience in Ireland like? What uh, we're talking about? What, what's how? What how contagious is it here? What level of lethality does it see? Do we see? And also, what are there groups of people that are particularly affected? As we see in this case, we're talking about people with respiratory illnesses and, and massively people over the age of sixty or certainly over the age of eighty. What's the situation with the, with the flu? Who 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 is particularly affected? Are this, is it the same types of people? So the really unusual feature about this uh, was that there was young, previously healthy uh, adults uh, who caught it. Like people maybe around 25 to 35 would form uh, an unusual peak in, in the numbers of deaths. It's a, a W-shaped curve when you look at the, uh, at the, at the fatalities. Uh, so you find the under fives are badly affected. Uh, the there's the particularly high centre to the W with the 25 to 35 year olds uh, being affected worse, uh, you know, but a broad spectrum of 20 to 40 being badly affected. And then what you would normally expect to see that older people would be really badly affected by like a seasonal flu uh, because they might be weaker. And um, that didn't happen so much with this flu. The final 
um, rise wasn't quite as, as far. The other um, interesting feature was that um, it was people who, um, whose jobs or families were the, were the breadwinner, the job involved working with the public. And this is something I've been trying to warn about, particularly with this flu because I felt, or with this uh, coronavirus, because I felt it would be a, a very comparable thing, um, particularly when we're all staying at home. So like people like the police, obviously the medical services, uh, pharmacies, uh, shop workers of all kinds, um, people working in banks, um, postal workers, um farm workers um all those kind of people who either dealt with the public or worked in groups factory workers my colleague patricia marsh has done particularly good work uh looking at it in the in the linen mills in the north you know where where um people would be clustered very close together um so um all this is is uh so if you were a 25 to 35 year old and your job involved working with the public somebody like uh my friend Anne Burke her grandfather was a guy called James Delaney who was 28 at the time and a police constable at Lad Lane and he caught it in December 1918 because so many of the police force were um down with it and their colleagues are struggling to do things like um, helping out with the medical side of it too like you know with ambulance work and things like that um that um he felt obliged to go back to work before he was fully better and died on the job from from pneumonia, I, you know, leaving um, Aunt's father uh, as a, a small boy without his father, you know. Mm-hmm. What was the medical response was, in Ireland? What, what, yes, what could they do? Well, there was very, again, the echoes are very light today, uh, that they were eagerly kind of share and pool and say, what are you treating it with? And doctors came together in, in uh, the 15th of November uh, 1918 at the Royal Academy of Medicine in Ireland and had a big meeting and uh, uh, various doctors, uh, George Peacock, for example, who worked at, at um, uh, the King George V military hospital and and, and at some other hospitals in Dublin spoke about it and um, another one, uh, Captain Spears, uh, spoke about it. Um, I think he was in the Adelaide and they talked about the various treatments that we're using and they generally said like that they would give something uh, usually to uh, control the headache. Uh, they'd give something to control the fever, which they said was quinine. Um, the headache, I think, was aspirin they gave. They'd give calomel. Uh, which is mercurous chloride, um, to open the bowels. Uh, Mm. They often gave whiskey uh, because it seemed to suit the symptoms. Uh, If they didn't use whiskey, they might give something, they might improve of whiskey for religious reasons. They'd give strychnine, which is um, something that uh, my generation tends to think of as James Bond's would-be assassin's uh, poison of choice. Uh, But apparently strychnine acted as kind of a stimulant and they'd they'd give it an an, an injection. uh, the pharmacists at the time talk of uh, making lots of uh, poultices with linseed and they put this between two layers of cloth and put it on people's chests and it seemed to offer some comfort and I've heard of people uh, talking about how it did seem to free up their chests when this happened to them. Uh, they'd also make suggestions like very mild nourishment, like an awful lot of people have got gruel at the time, very watery porridge. And um, then in the community, people gave an awful lot of uh, whiskey, cochine. And uh, some of the people I I know, 
um, they, 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 they drank hot whiskey for the first time as five-year-olds. I have heard, I don't know if you want to call it folk history, folk medicine, whatever, but I remember my grandfather and others saying that for those who had the, had the constitution and the money to stay mildly drunk for the period, <clears throat> it was a way to say, was there act, actually anything to that, this notion that if you could stay mildly drunk, you, you would help? Well, I told a story about that. I had interviewed uh, Raphael Siv, uh, who used to run the Jewish Museum in Dublin, sadly died as quite a young man. And um, he told me that his father's brother uh, was 15 at the time and he caught it. And they knew that he was, you know, a kind of vulnerable age group, a bit, little bit younger than it, but, but, but um, uh, that they kept him constantly mildly drunk for about three weeks and um that he survived so um i had said this at the very first academic paper i ever gave in uh trinity college dublin to for a royal Irish academy um meeting on on science right our history of science and uh, a doctor in the audience actually said to me well you know that might have stopped what is a common um uh, thing in uh, common complication of flu which is a, a cytokine storm uh, where uh, there is an over uh, response of the immune system, and um, which happens with uh, this to, virus. To explain it very simply, and he said, if you gave flu, um, whiskey or other alcohol, that it might suppress the immune system. So okay. I don't know. I, I'm not a scientist. I'm, no, I'm just but it's interesting. what I was told. Yeah, yeah. Because of course, that that's one of the problems associated with this virus is this 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 storm that. And yeah. its relation to the, uh, and the, and the, the way it devastates the lungs. Okay, two questions. Well, two very small, minor questions. How contagious was it, uh, or how, in reality, or as in perception, and how lethal was it here? Well, caveats there because we couldn't test like we, we have in, in 1918. Uh, we had 20,057 official deaths according to the Registrar General. Generally, um, the rule of thumb that the international research community would use based on what we know and counting up, you know, different numbers and looking at newspaper reports and things like that is that um, there probably was a case fatality rate of something about 2.5%. It's taken to be in or around there. Okay. And you know, obviously higher in those Inuit communities and uh, in um, other regions, but generally somewhere like Ireland, it seems about right. And uh, when you look around how it silenced communities as it fell through, what would happen was an entire community, even though we didn't have lockdown, that uh, a community would go still as the flu would pass through. So you see somewhere like Gorey or mm. Euros or Nace or Dundalk or wherever, as it passed through, um, the sick would stay in their homes. Uh, somebody would be, might be operating the soup kitchen to, to feed them. Uh, but other people, particularly if you had small children, or if you, you would stay home to try and just not catch it. And I have lots of accounts, particularly from around the southeast, uh, where people have told me this, that, say, for example, for the celebrations uh, for the end of the war in November um, 1918, where uh, a lot of the towns in Ireland had bonfires to celebrate the end of the war. And um, 
there were gatherings and um, uh, but some families were so afraid uh, that their children might catch it they didn't go out to celebrate it even though normally they might have and so quite a lot of, of the witnesses have told me that so people were to an extent spontaneously isolating themselves yeah 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 i mean i mean, I mean this was uh, it was very well known for a long time that uh, proximity is what enabled you. I mean, it's so blindingly obvious to us now. Uh, but people like Sir Charles Cameron, um, who was medical officer of health for Dublin at the time, 88, been uh, working to improve the health of Dubliners for more than 50 years. And he said, you know, it really would be prudent to people uh, to stay indoors because such uh, crowded gatherings are where uh, such diseases spread. And he was constantly advising journalists about this, you know, that people should stay home if they possibly could and stay away from crowds. And you see things like um, there's a newspaper report in the Irish Times uh, where a grocer from Westmoreland Street said the better class of people are sending out for their messages just now. So people were staying home to try and avoid catching it mm. if they could. But of course, for some people, that just wasn't possible because there was no social welfare uh, as such like there is today. So... Um, you know, poor people who wouldn't have savings would just have to go out because they had to earn money and that was that, yeah. if they so could. You, know? you used a phrase there, Ida, as it passed through, as it passed through Gory or as it passed through Nacer, mm. was there a sense that there was a geography to this disease, that it could be oh, tracked? Oh, very much so, you know, that, that it was travelling around uh, for the... Um, Trinity um, Glasnevin exhibition, um, we did maps, uh, Georgina Larrigan, Frank Ludlow particularly did uh, poor law union maps, I've done county maps, and uh, we were looking at these maps and playing with a bit, and we said, like, Frank, you know, what happens if you put on the railways? And we could see, sure enough, that there was a correlation, but of course the railways would also follow population. Um, so there is, a, you know, there is talk that they spread along the railways and the railway network was at its most extensive in 1918. Uh, but there's a curious feature about this is the one place that had a particularly low experience of the flu was County Clare. Uh, oh. And if you're a Percy French um, yes. fan, you might give uh, hazard a guess why the West Clare Railway and its notorious um, inefficiencies is one reason, but another reason uh, would be there was military suppression in Clare. And a lot of the roads were cut up, so it was almost impossible to travel much around um, uh, the county at the time. Uh, another thing we did was we put on the barrack towns onto it, uh, but barrack towns would also, um, t that showed a high correlation too, but the barrack towns would also uh, be market towns generally. Of course. So, um, you know, was it the barrack or was it the market? You know, was it the army or was it the market that made mm -hmm. it like that? Um, so it seemed to, like broadly speaking in Ireland, the first wave affected the northeast quadrant um, from Antrim down as far as Dublin and almost over, uh, and as far as Donegal. Uh, the second wave, uh, again, um, the northeast quad quadrant, but down all over Leinster, which had a really bad experience of it. And I hear then a lot in, of the time people... In the third wave, it moved, in, it moved right across over to the western seaboard, where, where um, Mayo in particular had a very bad experience of it. Sorry, I uh, just got... Mm -hmm. I've heard it said several times that unusually uh, in, in, for this kind of virus, that the second wave was particularly bad, particularly virulent, particularly lethal. Was that the case? 
Well, people mentioned that, but like, why was it? Was it a stronger version or was it that it was um, winter? And um, sometimes they say that these diseases are stronger in winter and that they weaken in summer. And this was something that the virologists were looking at for, for the Wuhan virus, for the, the, the coronavirus, was to see if uh, it was weakened by heat. And it doesn't seem to be. Uh, uh, but it's possible that that happened in 1918, that the summer version wasn't as strong. But there were three um, waves, you say? At least three, in some places four. Yeah. Uh, well, most, most places had three waves. You see, um, the, the waves would happen in slightly different um, times in different places. Donegal had a um, really bad experience of all three waves in Ireland. So how, what, between the beginning of the first cases in Ireland and the end of the third wave, what kind of time were we talking in Ireland? No, we were talking May until uh, late May, uh, really, for the bulk of the of the cases, um, nineteen eighteen until um, the end of halfway through April, nineteen nineteen. So it's a little over, you know, it's it's not quite a year. Um, so it's three three it's waves around eleven, a year. less less than eleven months. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, and the bulk of the deaths, now you'll find pockets of deaths. Yes. Uh, for example, Longford had a pocket of deaths in August uh, uh, 1919. But uh, the bulk of the deaths um, ha have happened by um, April 1919. Now, we're talking about what, well, what appears to be on the face of it, a much less lethal virus. Um, I don't know that we can say that. Well, yeah, I, the, and yeah, you're correct. Absolutely. Like, one yeah. of the things they've said, we don't know. You don't know about what an epidemic is until it's over. Exactly. Um, uh, Morens and Tobenberger famously, who looked at all the influenza pandemics uh, that are known since the 1500s, uh, said that there was no uh, discernible, uh, comparable wave pattern in any of them, that there was no... Um, you know, that the three-wave, three-four-wave pattern of 1918-1919 uh, was unique to that. And um, that they said, uh, I think very tellingly, uh, that every pandemic has to be lived forwards and understood backwards. Right. And that you can't really predict what's going to happen until it's happened. Yeah. I think that I'm aware reading, shall we say, let's call them debates on social media between people far, even far more experts than me that, uh, on these things. And the, the, with displaying levels of certainty about what is a fact and what isn't a fact that I find extraordinary. The fact is, until this is done and dusted, and we have probably got a fair bit of time afterwards, there are, the, the, the amount of data is incredible. I mean, I, I, I say, yeah. I, for historians, the snowstorm of data is going to be incredible yeah, fun afterwards. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things I was very uh, keen on doing uh, from very early on was making sure that people collected memoir or histories and that institutions should be very careful to record what they're doing. 
because that's one of the gaps that you see in the 1918-1919. Of course, in an Irish context, that is absolutely complicated uh, by the revolutionary period and particularly uh, with the forecourts and with the custom house issues uh, where that we lose the data from there. Uh, so the custom house is the local government board for Ireland's headquarters, and they're basically running the poor law union medical dispensary service. So um, when their records are destroyed and taken off, down off the shelves and quite deliberately burned uh, by the revolutionaries, um, I'd love to burn, well, no, I wouldn't love to burn the revolutionaries, uh, <laughs> but, you know, um, that um, I... You know, when you think of what we would have been able to say about this yes. if those records had been there, oh. <coughs> we might have been able to say things that they might have liked to say yes, about right. the way the country was managed or mismanaged at the time. No, you, you, we had, you were saying at the end of this all, over 20,000 deaths described. Officially from flu, yeah, and about 3,000 excess deaths from pneumonia when i looked at the counted up the deaths for the previous decade from pneumonia and then looked at uh, and of course you have to remember that there was no antibiotics in this time of they course. were in widespread use until the 1950s now, and that makes a massive difference to deaths in ireland we are a very very long way away from that kind of number at the moment in this pandemic and please god hopefully we will stay a very long way away from it but, but you know i i trying to figure out how many deaths were in the first wave and they probably weren't much more than that yeah than what we have at the moment if you look at the society i mean this is not maybe i'm sure it isn't a fair question but i'll ask it anyway do you think that we as a society are will have the side the kind of shall we say social spiritual psychological capacity to deal with that level of death in the same way as a society like the, the Irish society in 1918 <coughs> No, no, absolutely not. We're a very different society. Um, we're, we're a very different society to then. Our experience of death from infectious diseases is very different. Um, in, 19, in the 1910s, uh, there were upwards of 70,000 deaths on the, on the island each year. Uh, now we have on the total island just over uh, 30,000, maybe 31, 32,000, if my memory serves me correctly. Um, uh, so our experience of a, a, a death from infectious disease was much more common at the time. And you would see um, maybe five or 600 deaths a year from measles. Um, the same from scarlet fever, mm -hmm. uh, something similar from whooping cough. Uh, you would see rather less from diphtheria, uh, but you would see um, huge amounts of deaths from diseases like bronchitis, pneumonia, and of course TB, which we call uh, the long pandemic, which goes on for years and years and years and caused so much devastation to so many Irish families. The long uh, pandemic? But, yeah, yeah. That's a great, yeah, that's, that's a great description, yeah. isn't it? Long epidemic, sorry, rather than long yeah. pandemic, but well, I suppose still, well, it, is a, it is a pandemic as well. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, um, death from infectious disease is quite common, and I think this is one of the reasons uh, why people didn't really realise at the time all that much about what was going on. They knew it was a big bad flu, uh, but the scale of it, like, I mean, the numbers weren't even counted uh, properly uh, for almost 100 years. 
Uh, and even property, we're still very vague. We're still saying over 50 million, maybe 100 million. Gosh. And um, the first robust estimate of any sort that was given was in the 1920s um, uh, by Edward Noakes Jordan. And he estimated, I think it was 27 million, or 22 million uh, in, the, in 1927. And um, he, um, you know, now we know that the Indian death toll was something like that. It was 22 million uh, alone. So the Indian death toll we now know uh, was the same as the, what was thought to be the global death toll for it in the 1920s. So, wow. you know, the more... Um, we can look at these things, the more we can see. Uh, in Ireland, the local government board for Ireland uh, admitted, uh, you know, that doctors were trying so hard to cope uh, with um, the living that they, they couldn't document all the paperwork for the dying. Um, so this, they, they reckoned the numbers were very conservative. I d I'm very conscious that I'm taking up your, your time and you're your busy, but... Oh, before we finish, or, or, or shall we say, uh, to, to, can we finish yeah. on this question? Uh, yeah. Looking back on the uh, the experience in the previous pandemic, and looking as we are now about to put our heads gingerly out the door after the first wave, not knowing will there be a second wave, a third wave, how what how that might manifest itself, etc. What can we learn, or, or is it is it a vain hope to try and learn anything for history? Is there anything, is there something we can we can learn from the study of the, our experience of our forebears? There is a, an enormous amount of things that can be learned, but and and like this is something I have already been sharing uh, um, with members of the health services who are looking at my work uh, to see and other people's work, uh, people like Patricia Marsh in Belfast, uh, to see how it can talk or how it can inform. For example, one of the things they were looking at was the medicines used and they were particularly interested in the fact that they used quinine in 1918, uh, which was an anti-malarial medicine and some of the medicines they'd been looking at in the now were, were anti-malarial medicines as well. Yes. Uh, but one of the things I would like people to take away from it is that uh, people talk about this being an immediate crisis. And 1918 was an immediate crisis too. But I interviewed people in their 90s and in their hundreds who had never forgotten that disease, who even when they remembered it, became almost physically ill, remembering the loss of their own family at the time. You know, that their tummies would be upset and things yeah. like that because it was so traumatic. And you never forget, people, the children now, they're never going to forget what's happening to their families. And one of the reasons why I'm so keen that people should uh, document their feelings, their ideas, regardless of who they are, whether they yes. work in medicine or whatever job they do, or whether they're just somebody sitting at home and thinking about it. Emotions are changing every day. Like collecting this in a year's time is going to be too late in a way uh, because our emotions change with each phase of it and depending on our own personal circumstances. But there are people going to be born in future years who will not have lived through these times, who will become professionals in some way, who will be dealing with the people who did live through this time and who suffer damage from it. They'll be yes. treating them and they, the more we can document this, uh, the more evidence they will have to understand what's going on and how it impacted and how it affected people. And that's something 
that I found very poignant uh, from my own interviews. I did uh, well over 50 and official interviews and then have chatted to an awful lot more at uh, local history talks, uh, people who tell me absolutely amazing uh, things that um, I'm amazed, you know, that, that yes. are still in, remembered within our communities now, even though it's more than 100 years ago. So your and, message would be record it. Yeah. Record it, write record it down, it, tape it, video it, whatever. It. And then maybe deposit it with places like the National Library. If you're a doctor, the Royal College of Physicians, or a nurse, or any medical personnel, the Royal College of Physicians is collecting. Whatever country you're living in, the Canadian archives are doing fantastic work. The same in America, uh, Colombia, um, the Oral History Centre there is collecting uh, memory there of it already too. Uh, so many projects are collecting. Find your local one, record it, record it into your phone, however you want uh, onto it, write it, do whatever you do with it. But it's really important because I searched, it took me 90, you know, it took 90 years really for somebody to come along and collect oral history of the flu in Ireland. Other countries, they, they started these oral history projects earlier. Uh, for example, Howard Phillips uh, collected in the 80s, in, in, in uh, the 1980s in, in um, South Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, but these interviews are so important even now to understand the experience of Spanish flu. We will be able to start parsing it much quicker could you tell the people what is the name of your book, which is you're based on your PhD thesis, I know, which uh, your book on the Spanish flu, and where can people get it? Uh, my book is called Stacking the Coffins, Influenza, War and Revolution in Ireland, 1918 to 1919. It was published by Manchester University Press two years ago. And you can actually get it directly from Manchester University Press. And if you use the code STACKING50 at the checkout, it will be £12.50 rather than £25, which is not that bad a price for an academic book, which are often more likely 100 quid. Um, but and you can also get it uh, on ebook from Amazon and you can get it from places like kennys.ie and all independent bookstores will be able to order it from you. It actually is not sold on Eason's uh, because they don't stock a lot, a lot of academic books. But could, could you could just repeat that trick there because that sounds like that's a bloody good value uh, yeah. discount there. So if you're going so to it, directly order it directly from Manchester University? For, for directly on the Manchester University uh, website and uh, the code they'll ask you for a code at checkout. It's called Stacking Fifty, Stacking which 50. is for fifty fifty percent off. It's not very referring good. to the number of coffins. No, um, I I might be biased. Just but to I... remember, there are people listening to this, Michael, who yes. are so badly affected by it, and maybe whose families were affected in nineteen eighteen nineteen. Uh, also, and just to say that, you know, I'm sure yours and my heart goes out to them all, even as, we're, as it, they're listening to us. It's, it's, it's a surreal time. Um, there's a colour to the world at the moment, which is very odd. And Absolutely. Our sense of our, ourselves, our sense of our certainties and our safety and mm. it's disruption. It's an extraordinary time. You see people like I, I, I live alone. Um, and I see some people living alone saying, oh, I have it worse. And I say, well, no, I don't have it worse. I'm really lucky because I live alone because I can just worry about me. I have two yes. daughters who I yes. care about and my family, obviously, and friends. Um, but um, 
you yourself to worry about and you can take in a sense you can take responsibility uh, I think for none of us have the monopoly on fear at the moment no yeah no. yeah 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 and I think everybody um, has their fear everybody's fear is equal at this time possibly more than equal if you're a medical worker mm-hmm. or somebody who's actually got the disease or who has family who've got it um, but it's it, it's such an extraordinary thing to have everybody in the world filled with fear at the same time and another strain such as an inconsequential thing that people are that scientists disagree even to the extent whether it's alive or not alive just to seek some pieces of genetic code any ida it is always fascinating to listen to you i have genuine i mean i've read this you've read the book i've heard you talk before but i have been sitting here again fascinated by the stories this we've been talking today folks to dr ida milne Anybody that wants to contact her, her book is called Stacking the Coffins. She is the lecturer of European history at Carlo College and can be, can be contacted there. I'd like to thank you for listening. Ida, thanks a million for coming, coming along. And, you know, maybe not, not in the next few weeks, but maybe sometime in the future we'll come back and continue this discussion in the light of happier times. But on, Do we hope now, we have that good luck. Stay safe. And goodbye and God bless. Thank you.